0: Beliefs, traditions, and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were, and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them, we still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. ghosts. Of all the wide and varied aspects of folklore, arguably none capture the public imagination like the ghost. Whether walking a castle rampart or hitching a ride, we have a fascination for this image of souls long departed. Turn on any television documentary channel and you won't need to wait long to find a ghost hunting program. There is a deep-seated desire for the scientific proof of haunting phenomena. After years of continued study by scientists and academics, parapsychologists and other investigators employing rigorous techniques with meticulous care and integrity, the conclusions are roughly what one might expect. Ghosts may, or may not, exist. Science cannot always provide an answer. Even when it does, many people will choose to ignore it and hold on to their own beliefs. And this is why the field of folklore has so much to offer. For the folklorist, the question, do ghosts exist, is not posed. If they do exist, that is not the concern of the folklorist. Folklore is primarily concerned with the basic beliefs and rituals of human beings as emanations of the human mind, rather than whether or not they coincide with actual external entities. I'm Mark Norman. I'm a folklore researcher and writer and committee member of the Folklore Society. The study of folklore is often about the examination of symbolism. In this episode of the Folklore Podcast, I'd like to examine two traditional symbolic haunting images, cockstride ghosts and phantom coaches. To do this, I will use case studies from the southwest of the United Kingdom for illustration. As a folklore researcher and author, I give a number of talks around the country. Some of these are to big academic groups and the like. Others are to smaller, local groups. Often, in the course of these talks, it is appropriate to try and cite some interesting local examples when examining a much broader theme. This sums up the very nature of folklore itself. It is the law, traditions and beliefs of folk. This does not mean in many cases a small group of people. The term folk here is very disparate. It may cross parish borders, or county boundaries, or indeed countries. Because where we find a local tradition or story, it will draw on either parallel stories or beliefs or themes from elsewhere. I'll give you an example. When I was researching my book on black dog folklore, I examined the case of the Hain family from Crediton in Devon, who were said to have a black dog associated with them. A member of the family wrote of the story in a letter to a resident of a nearby village in 1958, in which they said, One of the legends of our family was that a member was mixed up in a drinking bout and wagered he'd get to a certain toll gate at Crediton first, whether he broke his neck or not. As his horse took off to clear the gate, a black dog ran out, the horse fell, and my ancestor did break his neck. A black dog is supposed to haunt the Hanes. It's an interesting story, but, as a researcher, I am immediately drawn to the word legend. And so I start to look further afield, and indeed find that the story is not unique. There are parallels in other stories of black dog ghosts around the United Kingdom that call its veracity into question. For example, there is a report of a calendar ghost which is said to appear on New Year's Eve on a road called the Sloane Track in the parish of Stoughton in Wiltshire. In this case, The spirit is said to be a headless horseman, which is followed by a black dog. But again, a wager is involved. The story goes that a man made a wager, whilst at Wincanton Marketplace, that he could ride his horse home to Stourton in seven minutes. He took a rough route for speed and fell from the horse, breaking his neck. The similarity with the Hain case is obvious. It is likely that the credit and legend, therefore, is just that, a legend, which has no basis in fact, but rather draws on what seems to be a more common folklore theme. It is possible that the wager stories grew out of some warning story to prevent people from riding unsafely. It is impossible to now trace the reason for certain. So, we are looking within folklore for themes and motifs. Unlike pure history, where an event has occurred at location A, in folklore A reported event at location A may also variously have happened in a similar way at B, C, D and E. This is not to say, however, that folklore studies are distinct from history. Some academic historians would, and do, argue that that was the case, but I maintain that folklore really is a subset of history. Folklore and tradition is born from historical facts in many and various ways, making it a part of any country's cultural history. The Oxford Dictionary of English Folklore tells us that a cockstride was a country term for a tiny distance and was used of the increase of daylight in early January. For example, in John Ray's 1678 collection of proverbs, At twelfth day, the days are lengthened a cockstride. In ghost lore, the term is used to highlight the short distance which many banished ghosts may travel per year in order to try to return home. Let's pause for a moment at this point to just clarify what this idea of banished ghosts refers to. In modern times, if a person or a place are believed to be troubled by a ghost, or demon sometimes particularly within the views of the Catholic Church, then sometimes a rite will be undertaken to try and remove the spirit. This is often done by a specially trained priest, although other people can and do profess to do the same. We know this rite as exorcism. It is not undertaken lightly, particularly in the church, and can be extremely dangerous because, whatever you personally believe may be being dealt with, an individual's own beliefs, their psychology and mental state are being tapped into. From time to time, tragic cases are reported in the media where individuals have died during exorcism. Belief in possession is actually highlighted as a potential danger in some child protection guidelines. In previous centuries, the word exorcise was not used to describe ghosts being contained or banished. In written accounts from earlier times, we read of ghosts being laid down, suggesting that they are being put to rest rather than being driven away. This procedure would always follow a similar pattern. It would always be a minister who was called in. He would be asked to read the spirit down and then, by candlelight, He would read aloud passages from the Bible. This would cause the ghost to be diminished in size bit by bit until it was small enough that it could be contained in a bottle or a box. In some cases, continuous prayer lasting many days and nights would replace the Bible reading. The process in either case leads to the bottle or the box being thrown into a pond or placed in a tree or in a chimney. Common periods of time are often given for this containment. 66 or 99 years, which seem like odd numbers until you consider that 33 years was generally classed as a generation. Returning to cockstride ghosts, the other method of laying a spirit was to force it to perform some kind of impossible task, such as weaving ropes from sand or emptying a pool with a receptacle with a hole in it. The implication is that the spirit will therefore be bound until Doomsday. In any case, if the ghost is banished and cannot be laid to rest, it is allowed to return to its home or original haunting site at the rate of one cockstride each year. In her 1996 presidential address to the Folklore Society, the inimitable Jacqueline Simpson, speaking about ghosts in M. R. James's writing, points out that in Denmark, cockstride ghosts are malevolent, whereas British ones are penitential. This does not, however, mean that there was anything usually pleasant about the person involved when they were living. In many cases, before heading for a location at this slow pace to seek their penance, these spirits will have first been laid or read down and often set to the impossible task. It is not until the task is completed that they can begin their journey towards ultimate salvation, as we've already seen. One example is Sir John Popham, Speaker of the House of Commons from 1580-83 to and subsequently Attorney General and Lord Chief Justice. He presided over the trials of Sir Walter Raleigh and Guy Fawkes and was evidently not a nice chap. He is rumoured to have secured the ownership of Littlecote House in Wiltshire by condoning a horrible crime perpetrated by his kinsman, Wild Will Darrell. In old age, Popham retired to his native Somerset and built a house for himself in Wellington. His wife, who was a rather more pious character, died before he did. The Popham family tomb is at Wellington Church, but it is said that Sir John Popham is not buried here, According to local legend, he was rewarded for his controversial life by being thrown from his horse into a deep, stone-sided dell on the Blackdown Hills, now known as Popham's Pit. The pit is said to be bottomless because it is one of the entrances to the underworld, and Popham allegedly died horribly and descended into hell. On account of his wife's prayers for him, it is said that his spirit may rise on New Year's Eve and move back towards the church at a cockstride, not being able to rest in peace until it gets there. Legend says that there are tunnels leading from the sides of the pit, one of which is supposed to link with the family tomb at the church, even though this is three miles distant from the hill, and it is along this passage that he may crawl. There is a farm lying on the line of this route, and early in the 19th century strange noises were heard under the floor of the house. A white witch was brought in and, realising that the noises were caused by Popham's spirit, he banished him back to the pit once again. At Lapford, in North Devon, we find the grave of Jack Radford, a Victorian hunting parson who died in 1861. He became the focus of a number of horrific legends. He was renowned as a womaniser. It was remembered clearly that he allowed his hounds to terrorise the children of the village, and some even believed that he hanged his own curate. Radford desired to be buried in the chancel of his church when he died, but the villagers would not stand for this, and buried him in a grave outside the north wall of the church, the area that would have been reserved for unbaptized children, people of poor character, and later, suicide graves it is possible that this prejudice of burials to the north comes from an idea which is common in apocryphal literature that hell lay to the north. This is why we find in Cornish mystery plays that the layout of the stage was always carefully configured so that heaven was in the east, with good characters entering from the south and west, and bad characters usually from the north. There has also been a suggestion made that the idea has its root in the Bible itself, In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, verse 1, Evil appeareth out of the north. It is therefore said that his spirit is uncontent, and a small hole can sometimes be seen in the grave, through which he may pass and try to return to the old rectory, at the pace of a cockstride. The legend also states that the stone cross of the grave will not remain upright, and this at least is true, because when I visited it, It was now secured by a metal plate down the back of the cross. It is probable, of course, that ground subsidence causes this, but the effect feeds naturally into the legend and adds credence. In the wonderfully named village of Coffinswell, an unnamed lady is buried, for reasons unknown but no doubt sinful, beside the village's holy well, rather than in the consecrated ground of the churchyard. Once a year, Again, as with John Popham, at midnight on New Year's Eve, she is permitted to rise and try to gain the churchyard at the distance of a cockstride. Her story was recorded by the Reverend Sabine Baring Gould towards the end of the 19th century. It is said that it will take until Judgment Day to reach her destination, but as usual she will find salvation when she gets there. This legend raises two interesting points. Firstly, the motif is strong enough that the story lives on even though the name of the protagonist is lost. But secondly, it highlights the improbable nature of a lot of these legends. If we think about it carefully, we must assume that if she will reach her destination eventually, she is progressing along a path. Each year, she rises from her grave to take her cockstride. So what's happening to the grave? Is it moving with her? And if so, why has nobody noticed? Or does she get some kind of free distance each year? So after 10 years, she rises from her grave and gets 10 free cockstrides before her allotted one. an old report from sulcum regis seems to provide an interesting variation to the cockstride ghost folklore where the pattern of events runs in reverse in other words the travel at the rate of a cockstride comes first with the laying down by the parson occurring at the end of the tale the event is listed as having been written down or recorded in some way by john baston a dairyman baptized on the 30th of march 1817 Although it seems irrelevant, that date information is useful to help us to date the account from its first few words. He said, About 120 years ago, the ghost of a Mr Lyd appeared in the orchard on the east side of the road running along the foot of Sulcombe Hill. Every year, the ghost advanced a cockstride nearer to Sid House, until at last it sat on a gate on the opposite side of the road. Then, Still, at the incredibly slow pace of a cockstride a year, he proceeded to an old oak tree almost in the centre of the field. This oak tree, although a bit battered by the storms of many years, is still to be seen standing in the meadow. after many more years. The determined spectre arrived in the cellar of Sid House. A maid-servant, on going to the cellar to fetch liquor, saw the ghost of Mr. Lyd sitting on a barrel eating bread and cheese with a quart of cider beside him. Eventually, to the horror and dismay of the people living in the house, the ghost, with a look of triumph, sat down to dinner with them one night. The family decided that to share their table during their evening meal with an apparition was more than they could bear, so one of them rode to Mr George Cornish of Pascombe in the Harcombe Valley to ask him if he would come and try to lay the obstinate ghost. Mr Cornish arrived, carrying with him a small Bible, and with very little difficulty, laid the spectre. Although that appears to be the account as originally recalled, some interesting extra detail was compiled in the 1920s by a local historian, J.Y. Anderson Moreshead, when putting together archives of the parish. In these it is noted that when the ghost reached the gate, six ministers were called to lay him, but they could not, So why should Mr Cornish have found it so easy when these other six failed? The answer is said to lie in his education, which took place at Oxford. It is generally stated in folklore of this type that only an Oxford scholar can lay a bad ghost, and so presumably the other ministers were not educated there. This account also adds a postscript to the story, which reminds us of the tradition of reading ghosts into a box for burial or similar. The day after Lid's spirit was laid, they drove a donkey cart up to Pepperell's field with his things and laid him with gravel for fifty years in a pit. The Lids are an old Sidmouth family, and the most likely original for this ghost is Thomas Lid, who died in 1824 and is buried in the family vault in Sidmouth Parish Church, as his dates match Reverend George Cornish, who served the area between 1821 and 1828 before moving to Cornwall. This means that John Baston, who wrote the account, would have only been a child at the time, and so we must assume that he's relating gossip rather than providing an actual eyewitness account. Further reports of this ghost being seen certainly exist in 1870 and 1920, and there is a suggestion that he was still around as late as 1979. We've already noted that Cockstride ghosts tend to be penitential, and so the reason for this haunting is most likely guilt. Lyd is rumoured to have murdered his uncle, and there is also a tradition of some form of treasure buried under an elm tree. To die leaving wealth hidden was seen as an injustice to your heirs, and hence the spirits of anyone who did so were unlikely to find easy rest. The final coxtride ghost that I'd like to mention I include because it provides a good segue into the next section. It takes place at Dunsford, in Devon, and concerns the old squire of the parish, Squire Fulford. He is said to haunt the area because, like Parson Radford, he was not buried where he wanted. The parson had his remains dug up and reburied in the sand beside the river, where he was tied down with straw, and each night he takes a cockstride nearer to Fulford house. But he is also seen, minus his head, sitting on a coach which travels backwards up the lane with the horses harnessed back to front, or "baczivo" in local dialect. The coach eventually fades away into the night. And so we move on to the second element of this examination of folk ghosts and look at those associated in some way with phantom coaches or carriages. One of the most famous fictional phantom coaches can be found in Thomas Hardy's Tess of the D'Urbervilles. The phantom coach of the D'Urberville family borrows heavily from actual folklore records and follows a common pattern for motifs of its kind. An ancestor of the family commits a terrible crime. There is a phantom coach containing his spirit, which is seen in the generations that follow, and it is a portent of ill omen to see it. Usually, the portent applies to anybody, but in some cases, like this one, the phantom is visible only to members of the family. Hardy's legend is based predominantly on that of the phantom coach of the Turbervilles, which follows a very similar theme, although the details of the legend have become rather mixed. In Thomas Hardy's Dorset, written in 1922, Hopkins cites a wicked Turberville whose life of drinking and vice sent him into temporary madness, and he murders a friend while they are riding in the coach to Woolbridge House. He states that the Phantom Coach and Horses runs the road from Wool to Beer, with the murderer running after, but never catching up. A later story puts the events in the reign of James I, and says that John Turberville eloped in a carriage and four with Lady Howard, the daughter of Viscount Bindon. The Spectral Coach drives from Woolbridge House to Bindon Abbey. Some, but not all, reports Mention that you can only see the coach if you have Turberville blood. There are many phantom coach stories around the West Country, and elsewhere, and the main themes of the motif are frequently replicated across them. A survey of them was requested by the Folklore Society in 1938, and the results were published by Mrs Cowie in the pages of the Folklore Journal in 1942. Around 60 of these were recorded across the United Kingdom, with a significant number being in the West Country, and five in Dorset, including the Turberville coach. This, however, is just the tip of a very large iceberg, and a new study is probably long overdue. Edward Waring collected 18 carriages in Dorset alone, although I have found in excess of this in my research. He noted that several of the records have the coach ending its journey by being plunged into water or marshes, and believed that this was a pre-Christian belief regarding a wagon collecting souls. The folklorist Christina Hole suggested that phantom coaches may be an evolution of the pagan belief in the wild hunt, which was extensive across northwest Europe during the medieval period. Witnessing the wild hunt also portended misfortune. Some coaches probably have no distinct identity and are just tragic motifs. It is easy to reason the parallels between the occupant of the ghostly carriage offering a lift, or the omen of doom hypothesis and the wild hunt. We are essentially, in many cases, dealing with a psychopompic vehicle, a conductor of souls, as wearing reasoned. Sometimes, the spirit in the coach is an erring human, being condemned to drive between two points as retribution for their sins. Jacqueline Simpson and Jennifer Westwood noted that where the coaches are not anonymous they are usually attached to landed proprietors against whom there is some kind of grudge, which categorises these tales in the same subset as many of the cockstride ghosts and sand spinners and the like which we mentioned earlier. One of the most well-known of the West Country phantom carriages is that belonging to Lady Howard of Tavistock. She was the daughter of Sir John Fitz, And she was a rich heiress who married four times, adding each time vastly to her wealth. She was orphaned at age nine when her father committed suicide. He had become very rich by inheritance at the age of twenty-one and, like so many others of the time, this excessive wealth led him on a moral slide into degeneracy. After his death, King James I intervened, and sold Mary to the Earl of Northumberland, who forced her to marry his brother, Sir Alan Percy, when she was twelve. Legend tells that she murdered her four husbands, but this would seem to reflect more the fact that she was hated by proxy just for being the daughter of John Fitz. The hatred and animosity towards Lady Howard is very apparent, and she died friendless and hounded by all her relatives. The events of her own life became merged with her father's, and the stories of her husband's deaths became more malicious, until the legend began to take shape. It was said that every night at midnight her coach emerged from the gateway of Fitzford. On its four corners were the skulls of her four husbands, and before it ran a black greyhound with one eye in the middle of its forehead. This striking cortege proceeded along the old road to Oakhampton. If a midnight wayfarer was overtaken by it, it was said that Lady Howard would graciously offer a lift. However, since this unexpected hospitality could only have a most sinister outcome, it was advised to refuse the offer. On arrival at Oakhampton Castle, Lady Howard would descend from her coach pluck a single blade of grass from the castle mound, return to her carriage, and drive home. She was to repeat this thankless task until the whole mound was cleared, which is obviously an impossible task, which would take until doomsday. Lady Howard is one of the earliest Devon examples, having died in 1671. However, there are some problems here. People are unlikely to have known what a carriage looked like before around 1700, due to the awful condition of the roads in the area pre turnpikes. It is known that Lady Howard did not own a carriage, although an inventory of her possessions at the time of her death shows that she did own a sedan chair. The route taken by her carriage and black dog seems to be paralleled by several runs of black dogs along other North Devon roads and so it's probable that she has been superimposed onto an older tradition. It would be possible to go as far as to speculate on whether the legend of Lady Howard of Tavistock either borrows from or has been confused with one of the versions of the Turberville story over the years. At first glance, there appear to be some similarities. Both occur in the reign of James I. Both concern a daughter called Lady Howard, and both mention a wicked male character. Of course, the coach is the folk motif in both. This is only a theoretical starting point, and would need more work to try and establish a stronger link. There is no obvious connection with phantom dog folklore in the Turberville case, nor does there seem to be any kind of penitential task. And why should the story travel from Dorset to be mapped onto a piece of Devon folklore? I don't have answers to these questions at the moment, but it provides an interesting backdrop for speculation. Similar to Lady Howard is the case of Madam Widdicombe of Coomwich in North Somerset. If accepting a lift from her, then the carriage, the passenger and everything are said to be plunged into the River Parrot and to vanish in a cloud of steam. This echoes Waring's research. Hearses were a popular form of ghost conveyance in the 19th century in the West Country and were often used to transport spirits of an entirely different nature. It has been suggested that many carriages were created by smugglers to keep people away from their trade. The brandy bottle tree in King's Kurzweil Parish on the Barton Hall estate was a regular cache for spirits of this kind. In King's Kurzweil, the goods were conveyed from the coast in a hearse which was painted with luminous paint, as were the horses whose hooves were padded. If you can imagine that their heads were not painted, then they would undoubtedly appear headless. Would this fake have worked, though, if there had not been an existing tradition? We find ourselves with a bit of a chicken-and-egg situation here there is quite a well-recorded phantom coach to be found in Dartmouth at the Royal Castle Hotel on the quay. This is a very old property, which is a bit of a time capsule on the inside, retaining a lot of ancient wood panelling and beams of roughly hewn timber. It has been suggested that these were salvaged from the wood of a wrecked ship from the Spanish Armada. There are countless other period features still to be found in the building. It is rumoured that, as well as many other famous guests in the past, including Queen Victoria, several of Charles II's mistresses were sent into what was known as polite retirement to the royal castle after the king lost interest in them. The phantom coach here is not seen, but is rather heard, supposedly around two in the morning during autumn nights. It is connected to the time of another monarch, James the Second. It was in the autumn time of 1688 that William and Mary, following the flight into exile of that monarch, came to England from the Netherlands in order to claim the throne. Mary was the first to arrive, and she lodged at the royal castle while she waited for William to follow. At that time the hotel consisted of two pairs of houses, which were separated by a narrow court. It was William's intention to also land at Dartmouth, but he was diverted during the crossing by a storm in the channel, and he ended up docking at Torbay instead. A coach was duly dispatched to collect Mary, and it arrived at the Royal Court shortly after 2am. This is the time that its phantom still continues to arrive, according to the legend. Both staff and guests at the hotel have frequently reported being roused by the sound of horses' hooves clattering over cobblestones. This is followed by the sound of footsteps, and then a carriage door being opened and slammed shut. Then there comes the crack of a whip, the noise of horses, and then the wheels of the coach as it rides off into the night. This event is always said to be marked by the sound of an invisible clock striking two in the street behind the hotel a more obscure phantom coach tale can be found on the Devon and Dorset border in the village of Uplime. This one dates from 1970 and does not seem to be recorded in much literature on the subject of hauntings. I happened across a reference to it quite by chance and have not been able to add much flesh to the bones of the story at this stage, although it warrants further investigation. The story tells that in that year, 1970, the witness, who was a nine-year-old boy at the time, "'was out cycling with some friends. "'He had made his way ahead of the others "'and was out of their sight when he says "'he saw something that he described as a stagecoach, "'like you see in pictures. "'It was red and black, trimmed with gold, "'and was pulled by a team of four horses. "'The driver,' he said, "'wore some kind of eye-mask "'and had a cap with a red feather in it, "'and two other men rode on horses alongside the coach.' The witness says that he saw the carriage turn out of a white gate and come straight towards him. He momentarily looked away, but when he looked back, it had vanished. Some of the details of this case seem to tie in with the history of the road, which used to be the old coaching road at Whitty Hill. At the point where the boy says that he saw the coach, it is recorded that there was indeed a pair of white gates which were no longer there in the 1970s. This fact was apparently unknown to the boy at the time, and so would seem to provide some interesting potential corroboration to the sighting. We need to draw everything together at this stage and see what we've learned. Legendary, or folk ghosts, to use the term I employed at the start, must be distinguished from normal apparitions. There is always something impossible about the legendary variety. One of the earliest examples is probably that of Sir Francis Drake, who is said to drive at night in a black hearse, drawn by headless horses and urged on by running devils and headless dogs. This firmly places him as a potential leader of the wild hunt, and he's often cited as such. Here, of course, we are seeing the punishment motif again. In this case, the acquisition of church property after the Reformation is often something to be punished in tales, and that could be one reason why Drake is said to ride out from Buckland Abbey. Another impossible outfit is that of Sir Robert Chichester of Martinhoe, who is alleged to appear as a black dog, sitting in a flaming car drawn by four elephants. We are almost getting into Discworld territory here, although that is, of course, just an example of an author who made prodigious use of folklore in his body of work. We can identify four key elements of folk ghosts. 1. There are no first-hand accounts of any of them. 2. They are based on the memory of a real person who is usually identifiable by name the starting point is the memory of a powerful personality, sometimes evil, sometimes rich, or sometimes a person who is just too clever for their contemporaries, such as a weaver or an inventor. They are people who dominate their community because of their abilities. They arouse the jealousy and hostility of those who will not fight them openly, but wait until they are dead and seek vengeance on their memory. Three. They haunt in their own form, or sometimes in that of an animal. And four, they interfere with domestic peace, and must be consigned to a remote part of the parish, or banished with an endless task, or one of a long duration. This is often 66 or 99 years, that is, two or three generations. When the time has elapsed, they may return, at a cockstride. The suggestion is that the haunting is not permanently settled, but that there is a delaying device. We live in modern times, and these legends do not pervade our modern lives as they did. However, they do still live on. People still report seeing black dogs and phantom coaches. Cliff Hocking of Mevergisi was driving to Truro to visit his wife in hospital. When on turning the bend, he was suddenly confronted by an old-fashioned stagecoach, pulled by four horses. He described it as being like an old mail coach. He slammed on the brakes of the car, which stalled, and put his hands over his face, fearing a crash. But when he looked again, the coach had gone. Maybe the memories of a collective consciousness still linger on, and this is in part thanks to the people who record them. Let us hope that we all continue to do so, whether that is researchers like myself, or writers such as those that I've mentioned, Thomas Hardy or Terry Pratchett, who draw on these themes. And let us hope that we do not lose sight of the folkloric past that surrounds us all. This episode of the Folklore Podcast was written by me, Mark Norman. If you found this subject interesting, there is an episode supplement available for download on our website. Episode supplements are available for each episode of the Folklore Podcast. They aren't just plain text, but a fully designed and illustrated electronic magazine. This episode supplement contains not only a full transcript of this show, but a further dozen or more case studies extra notes and suggested reading. The supplement is just 99 pence, or around $1.20. A few downloads cover our hosting costs and mean that The Folklore Podcast will always bring you quality talks and special guests absolutely free. You can download the episode supplement by going to www.thefolklorepodcast.com and clicking on Episodes. In the next episode of the Folklore Podcast, I'll be talking to historical ethnographer and archaeologist Kerry Holbrook about concealed objects found in the fabric of old buildings, their meaning, and how we might consider their afterlives in modern times. This episode was supported by designer Melissa Martell at MDM Create and production company Circle of Spears Productions. The Folklore Podcast theme music is composed by Gurdybird. Bird. Visit the Partners page on our website for more details. Please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thefolklorepodcast and follow us on Twitter at folklorepod.com please subscribe to ensure that you never miss a further edition of the Folklore Podcast. You'll find us on iTunes, or hit the website to find more subscription options. And please consider rating and reviewing this show on iTunes. Reviews push the show up the charts, making it more popular, and enabling us to bring this folklore to a wider audience. Thank you for listening. See you next time.